Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So tonight I wanted to conclude our series here on taking refuge. So I got some, (laughs) kind of like some loose ends here I wanted to tie up. Some uh, stuff on Buddha, Dharma Sangha. And the first week we did our history and I think the second week we talked about the practical kind of definitions of these classic Buddhist ideas. And then uh, today I'm going to offer one more slice uh, of the pie here. Just some, I think they're practical, um, practical ideas about this. Just kind of bits and pieces for each one that I always think it's helpful to be aware of. Just some frameworks for understanding. Um, so let's go back to taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha and this attitudinal orientation that's embedded in this ritual practice of taking refuge. And we'll start, of course, with taking refuge in Buddha, which I always like to remind us that it's, yes, it's the historical Buddha, but it's just teachers and mentors as well. Those on the path who are guiding us, mentoring us, teaching us. Back in the day, it would have been Buddha himself, but Now it's going to be our teachers and our mentors, Sangha members that we take or we have confidence in, uh, we go to for support and go to ask questions, get care and comfort when we're struggling, (laughs) as we often do as meditators. And so I just wanted to remind us why that's at the top of the list. And you know, the first noble truth, as I said earlier, there is suffering. And it's so easy to distract ourselves from the fact that life is just hard, that existence itself for humans is just not an easy, it's not an easy feat. It's not an easy feat. And to to do well as a human being, to wake up to compassion, to try and be wise and skillful, to try and find happiness, you know, it's not like it's just right around the corner, right? We got to work at it. We have to question things and learn and grow and adapt and question and second guess. I mean, it's just like we don't have an answer, right? We don't come into this world, you know, out of the womb with like a champagne glass and like an answer sheet that says, hey, here's what it is to be a human being. Good luck. You know, we just don't get that. And we have to figure it out. And we're constantly struggling to do so. So this first noble truth often is really just talking about that existence itself has a friction, that being in the world is tough. And we spend our time in this long human lineage trying to figure out how to live, right? We have to discover medicine. We have to figure out shelter and transportation and food and how to live with other humans, which obviously we haven't figured, we haven't finished that chapter yet because that one is still something we're really working on. But it's hard, you know, and, you know, I don't even mean that in any trite sense. It just really is hard. There's lots of suffering in the human experience across the board, just being human. And what really gets me is the length of time. (laughs) This is gonna sound like a bummer at first, but I'm hoping to stick the landing here. So, 
you know, what really trips me out is that, you know, we have this ancestry that goes back, you know, when you look at anthropology and some of these numbers I'm about to quote are may have already changed since I, I last looked them up, but our first human ancestors five to seven million years ago, right? Versions of what we call human five to seven million years. And it's like, I'm in my forties and I feel old and we're talking seven million years of human growth and human development into where we are now, right? On the planet. And then, you know, homo sapiens, they say, again, who knows how accurate this is. They may have discovered more bones since I last uh, took down this, these facts, but you know, evolved about 130,000 years ago, 130,000 years ago. And so what always baffles me is that after a minimum of 130,000 years, I still can't get people to like, let me in when I'm changing lanes on the freeway. And it's like, we look for these small courtesies and after 100,000 years, sometimes I just can't even get a smile, right? I can't even get a kindness. And I figured, gosh, after 130,000 years, I feel like we should be just more enlightened by now, right? You know, and I don't mean it to sound negative or like dark, but it just seems like we, we should have been farther. And I think the first noble truth acknowledges the fact that with all the science and all the tech and everything we strive for, being awake and aware, loving and kind is just a journey, right? And we're still on it big time, right? It's part of the human experience. And the first noble truth is that every day we're going to wake up to some dukkha. There's going to be some suffering. It's because of this first noble truth that refuge in somebody who is further along the path or who has completed the path is so important. Because if you think about the Buddha's declaration, oh, I found enlightenment, I found freedom from suffering. That's such a lofty goal. You know, it's such a high aspiration. And so considering how hard meditation is, right, to get the mind just to stop wandering for a hot minute, in and of itself seems like a grand human achievement. So having a mentor on this path is so helpful, right, and so necessary, because doubt creeps in, and rightfully so. It's so challenging being a Dharma student and being a meditator and striving to show up in the world in the positive way that we would like. So when you think of taking refuge in Buddha, what we're really saying is it's really comforting when we have such a lofty ambition and such a challenge to know that somebody's done it, right? That somebody has worked at it and strived and is now able to tell us, hey, come this way. This, this path works. You can do it. And have that love and support and care from somebody who can mentor us is really important because the journey we're on is a tough one right? It's a tough challenge what we're doing. It's not easy. And doing it without support or without having any confidence that it has been achieved or can be achieved, then it makes the path really, really rough. Having someone that we at least take comfort in, who we go to when we feel doubtful or confused or we're struggling, and who can give us some wisdom and care on the path, boosts our confidence and keeps us going. So think of Refuge in Buddha about mentorship, right? And that it's really helpful to have someone who can help us in times of need on the path and lessen our doubt and our confusion and help us to lessen some of the suffering and challenges we have as we learn these practices and we strive to be or bring goodness into the world. So that's one thing to look at when it comes to, to Buddha as far as taking refuge.
another aspect of mentorship that's helpful on this path is we have to remember that the Dharma is a lifestyle. It's not a technique. It has techniques and it has tools and it has practices, but it's something that's intended to be lived. And in order to live it, it's hard to do if we don't have role models who are also trying to live it and are being fairly successful at it, right? So we can actually see and feel what it's like to watch someone who's has that mastery of skillful speech or has that mastery of compassion, right? And so it's another element of that need for mentorship is that the Dharma is a lifestyle. It's a way of living. We're not just saying, I want to practice a technique. We're saying, I want to show up in the world as somebody. I want to show up in the world in a way that people can be transformed and cared for and loved and be helped with their own freedom by my presence in it. And so in order to do that, we've got to be able to see what that looks like. We have to be able to see what that looks like in real life. I was at a, uh, a training once. I believe it was at uh, Friends of the Dharma in, uh, in Portland. And one of the monks was there and we were having a Q&A and someone made a joke. Someone made a joke. And the, if I remember correctly, what the joke was, the joke kind of pretended that the monk had said something that was unskillful. Like the joke was kind of making fun of in a very polite way. It was just, there was a joke that I was told about what the monk had said. And it gave the impression that the, what the monk said was unskillful or could be taken the wrong way. And the monk politely said, be careful when you do things like that. Because he said, even though you're joking, someone in this room may not have heard all that you said, and they may have interpreted that as something negative. And that subtle lack of skillful speech could have done harm. And the way he said it and the, the power of his discernment really struck me because I thought, whoa, this guy is like serious about skillful speech. Like he was really attuned to how something that was really casual and I mean, I, there was a sense that it was funny and it wasn't intended to be you know harmful in any way. But what he said was it could have been harmful, so be awake and aware. And seeing that in real life, seeing someone apply the Dharma with such acuity and also with such compassion, I felt so inspired. And at the moment I thought, wow, I have to remember the power of skillful speech. You know, I don't often think of that. So in that moment, I got mentorship. In that moment, I could take refuge in a teacher who was demonstrating in real time, in a real experience, how I might consider my own speech and how I can prepare and be aware of what I'm saying so I might not inadvertently harm someone. And it was a really inspiring moment, a really inspiring moment. And when I talked to other students after the fact, we had a similar sense. It was like, wow, that was amazing to see that, that moment of teaching. And it was just really moving. So again, mentorship is really important. And when we take refuge in Buddha, you can think of it as the, the role of a mentor and the role that that might play in spiritual practice. Another aspect of this, and I, I believe I mentioned this last week, that when we talk about taking refuge in Buddha, we're talking about this dimension of our shared humanity. Taking comfort and getting confidence and having courage based on the fact that the Buddha's proclamation was that he was human and not a deity. And that he as a human being was able to 
reach these great, great heights of awareness, of compassion and joy. And that his message was, hey, you can do this too. That you, like me, can do this. That we, as a community of human beings, can be awake. And so we're taking refuge in the Buddha's humanity. And to be more specific, the instructions at times ask us, when we're struggling in our practice, to remind ourselves that when our mind wanders, the Buddha had that exact same experience. There were times in the Buddha's practice where he was frustrated with himself, disappointed in himself, angry at himself, had self-deprecating thoughts, probably was complaining about his mom and dad, had some childhood issues like everybody. Like, his mind is our mind, his heart is our heart. He was just a human being like us. And so there's this recollection when we say, I take refuge in Buddha, to remind ourselves that when we're struggling, that is the human struggle. When my mind wanders into the future, that's how your mind wanders into the future. It runs in there, it fantasizes, it craves, it clings, it longs for, it runs into the past, and we all share this. In the last 30 minutes of sitting, all of our minds did similar things because our minds do similar things. And so there's that comfort in our shared humanity as we walk this path, that in times of doubt and confusion, when we say to ourselves, this is a stupid practice and being with breath is insane and why am I doing this? And so on. And we all have those moments where we second guess meditation and we think, well, who does this? Who sits around and is mindful of breathing? It's, 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 it's ridiculous. We take refuge that other humans, generation after generation, teacher to student for thousands of years, have laid claim that it's worth the journey and have let us know, hey, it's tough, but... You're human, I'm human, and we can do this together. So there's a comfort there. And remember that refuge is about protection and comfort and safety and inspiration. So all of this can be had in the relationship of mentorship, in the context of that Kalyanamita, that spiritual relationship that we talk about. So that's one aspect I just wanted to highlight as far as taking refuge in Buddha. The next refuge that we talk about is taking refuge in Dharma. And Dharma, of course, are the teachings themselves, the path, the path as it's laid out in the teachings. Now, depending on which Buddhist tradition, there's going to be a different layout, a different blueprint. Depending on which spiritual tradition you're in, there might be a different blueprint. One of the things to consider with taking refuge is that every one of us has come to the Dharma from a different doorway, similar doorways but different doorways. So if you think about it, some of us come to the Dharma because we're already on a kind of spiritual journey. We're asking significant questions about what am I? What is it to be a human being? Is there something beyond the day-to-day -day grind? You know, what is it to show up and live into my true potential? These kinds of existential spiritual questions. And then we stumble across the Dharma and we find that the Dharma either holds them for us in a way that's very supportive or says, yes, these are great questions. Here's a tool and technique you can practice to possibly get some answers. So some of us enter into this doorway of a sort of spiritual quest or a spiritual inquiry. Other of us come to the Dharma because we're in the middle of a healing journey. We have some kind of pain, some kind of suffering, and we're looking for support. We're looking for health and well-being and we learn meditation or we find a teacher or we read a book and suddenly we're like, oh, there can be healing here. 
So some of us come into the path with a quest for healing. And we have the famous story of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of Gwinkaji, who came to this path uh, seeking a cure for his migraines and uh, how that went for him. So we all come here through these different doors of refuge. Now, some of us fall into the laps of the Dharma, right? We're curious. We walk into a Dharma center. One of our friends is a meditator or a yogi, and we're like, what's this? And we practice some mindfulness meditation, or we download a meditation online. And so we, we stumble into it out of a curiosity. And then it's like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And we begin practicing. Some of us come in through the door of community. Some of us are seeking community and care. And we come into a meditation center or a spiritual center. And we really like the love and compassion and the wakeful relationships that we see. And that's how we enter into the Dharma. There's a comfort and security there. There's been plenty of times where I've been in spiritual communities and I've introduced myself to somebody who I don't know. And the person has said something to this effect. Well, you know, I'm not really a meditator, but I just love being here. I just like the community. It's like, I like the tea and the conversation and I like to be around like-minded people. And, and when the first few times I heard that, I was kind of like, okay, so yeah, so you're not into meditation. And at first I was confused, but as I got to understand this idea of refuge, I realized that we come into the practice through different doorways. Some of us come in through Sangha, through the refuge of Sangha, and we are really delighted and cared for and find healing in the community itself. So we come into the Dharma through different doorways of refuge. So just a quick little survey here. So how many, I'm just curious, to the degree it's comfortable, but throw a hand up. How many of you came into the Dharma on the path of a spiritual journey, just some kind of existential curiosity. Anybody who just came in? Okay. What about you were on a healing journey and the Dharma's become part of a healing? Yeah, right? Me too. <laughs> Hands, feet go up, right? <laughs> Everything goes up. Yeah. How many people accidentally stumbled upon the Dharma just out of curiosity? Like it wasn't even something that was going on. Anybody? Okay, I'm not seeing any hands, but I do know people where this is the case. So you see, hands go up for different things, right? We're, we're all in the same Sangha, in the same community, on the same path, but we have come in from different doorways. And I'll tell you in a second why this can be important on the path. Another way that our experience of refuge is different has to do with which part of the practice tends to speak to our hearts. So some of us find our first insights and healing by listening to a Dharma talk or getting connected to a teaching, right? Or we read a book. So there's some kind of direct teaching that ends up lighting up our heart and just hits the mind in a particular way. Some of us, without any reading or much knowledge at all, end up on the cushion, right? Either at a retreat or in a center or at home. And we start practicing. And the first insight comes from the practice itself. The balance of these two parts of the path is where we talk about refuge and Dharma. So when we come into the Dharma and the teachings, we have the theoretical part, which is the books and the Dharma talks. Um, now we've got podcasts and whatever we have, right? And then there's the actual practice, which is sitting on the cushion and having the mind wander and bringing it back and feeling pain and aversion and working with it in direct contact. Now, the most successful refuge, the most 
Yeah, so the most successful refuge comes at the crossroads where we balance our practice with the study. The study is the path and the blueprint and the practice is the manifestation of that in our lives. And here's why it's important to, to consider that. Oftentimes, if we do too much of the reading, right, too much Dharma talks, too much of the scholarship and the language stuff and all of that, it's wonderful stuff. But if we do too much of that, the path can become too philosophical. It becomes too ephemeral and out of reach for practical practice. We can know a lot about the Dharma, but we don't know how to enact it or embody it in daily life. On occasion, I'll hop on some Buddhist boards and blogs or discussion groups and look at what people are saying about things, or I might ask a question and get some feedback on a topic I'm interested in. And I'm surprised at how many Buddhist discussion groups you follow the threads and it dissolves into arguments arguments and name calling (laughs) and this really it's amazing how human beings are human no matter where or what they're talking about so like you go on the blogs and it starts off and people are sharing quotes and then someone starts getting a little snippy and it's like you don't really know and that's not really true and that's the wrong dharma and before you know it there's this online dharma argument that's going on Uh, so yes it's great to have the knowledge we have to have the blueprint But that can be its own dukkha. That can fall into its own suffering. Now, similarly, if we're practicing without a map, we can also get equally lost. We can get really lost in the weeds without the map. And here's why the map is so important. And this might be obvious, but I think it's good to remember. One of the reasons the map is so important is that the interior world that we are experiencing in our meditation is much harder to describe than the external world. So if I wanna teach you how to use this, right? If I wanna teach you how to use the cell phone, I can show it to you, I can point to the apps, I can press the buttons, and I can say, look, this is called, you know, this is the time app, and this is Instagram, and this is Facebook, and this is email. And I have something I can point to, and we can both nod our heads and say, oh, okay. But if I invite you to be with your breath, And then I talk about factors of awakening or the relationship between mindfulness and concentration. What the heck am I referring to? We have no place to, we have no common language, right? To have the discussion. So it's really important that on occasion we check the map to make sure the map is matching our inside experience. Another reason for this is that the mind can create all kinds of meditation experiences all kinds of euphoric experiences and not self experiences and mystical experiences. And I mean, just explosive, expansive, interconnected sensations that can happen in the Dharma. But if we don't have the map to know where these things are within our practice, we can get stuck in one of those states or in one of those parts of the path. And then our practice tends to plateau. So in the Dharma, we balance the refuge by going inside and having the experience, then coming back out and taking a look at the map, right? And saying, okay, here I am. This is, it seems like I'm doing this all right. And then you look a little bit ahead on the map and you say, okay, up here, there's a waterfall. And so I'm gonna go back inside. And if the waterfall doesn't come within three miles, then I know I took a wrong turn. So the Dharma is very much like that. There's this inner world of experience that our mentors and practitioners who've been doing this a really long time, have seen and illuminated within themselves 
And they're trying to give us messages on how to walk this world inside. So we always have to take refuge both in the practice and in the teachings themselves to make sure the experience is what we think it's supposed to be. Because it's easy to take a wrong turn on a trail and say, wow, this part of the trail is so beautiful, it must be right. Even though your goal was to get to the top of the mountain and you, up, you end up going three miles out of your way in some other direction. So it's helpful to remember that when we take refuge in Dharma, we are taking refuge in both the map and the experience. And we're checking in with both. And then we're checking back in with our mentors to say, hey, am I reading this map correctly? Is this experience the experience that you're talking about that you've also had? And when we do that actively, you can see how supportive that would be for our, our practice when we engage and take refuge in that way. Okay, <laughs> I thought maybe I had more to say about that. I do not. Okay, refuge in Sangha, Buddha Dharma Sangha. The Buddha often talks about how Sangha is such a foundation, if not the foundation for spiritual practice, that the Dharma exists in community. That practicing alone is not the design. Transcendence is a community and cultural journey. We take it together. We take it together. Even monks who renounce the world, so to speak, are living in community. <laughs> and if you hang out and go to enough Dharma talks by monastics, eventually, at some point, they're going to tell you what it's like living with other monks and let you know that living with other human monks... <laughs> is just as trying and as much of a struggle and a hardship as living in the regular world. So uh, I can't, I mean, all that, just think of all the times monks have talked about the struggle and strain of living in community with other human beings, which of course all of us can relate to. So Sangha is important. The Dharma, though it's an inward journey, is not a solo journey, right? We do this together in community. We need care, we need support, we need mentorship, and we need feedback. We need feedback on how it's going. One of the reasons we need this social element in the Dharma is that the Dharma, when it's really the Dharma, is creating a brand new set of values for us. This is what the Buddha meant when he said against the stream, or one of the things he meant when he said against the stream. The Dharma, he said, goes against our biological conditioning. It goes against our cultural conditioning. It goes against our social conditioning. Because we live in a world where oftentimes the highest form of happiness is not a quest for compassion. We live in a culture where the highest aspiration is not the liberation of all beings, right? And so for this to take on this new value system, to commit to this highest aspiration of liberation, that's really tough to do if you're only only one doing it, right? When you do it with other people, it works a heck of a lot better. There's a cultural element to the Dharma where we come together to take our precepts, right? And we help each other be accountable to this aspiration of being kind and gentle, loving beings. And I don't mean held accountable as in like shaming, but I do mean held accountable in the sense that we come together and we collectively strive to be good people right? We collectively strive to be wise in our speech and wise in our body language, wise in the way that we care for people. We try to be awake and aware and help each other along and encourage each other in that process. 
I take this for granted all the time. And on occasion, I'll be I'll awake to it. But so many of my, well, I shouldn't say so many. I have a great handful of friends. One, this group here, I know many of you personally, uh, who I can talk to about the Dharma kind of just off the cuff casually. And I have found myself in a casual situation with another person who happens to be a Dharma practitioner. And both of us will suddenly ask ourselves if what we're about to do is skillful, if what we're about to do is kind or generous, or what is the mindful way of handling a certain moment. And that is such an incredible blessing to have someone else partnered on the path who can ask that question when you're about to do something or catch you when you're falling or falling off the path in some way or leaning too far to one side. Maybe you're getting down on yourself in some way. Not everybody has that. And when you don't have that, it's hard to see where you're walking. It's like walking on a very narrow trail. And if you walk too close to the edge, Sangha reaches out a hand and keeps you grounded, right? Our Kalyan Amita, our spiritual friends, keep us grounded on the path. The other thing that Sangha is obviously designed for is inspiration. Because the aspiration, again, is so lofty, we need to take comfort and confidence and be inspired by our fellow practitioners. Like, I always say this, and, I, and maybe it gets redundant for you guys, I don't know, but every time I come here and see you all in this room, I am so inspired because it tells me that what I'm doing is normal, normal, right? That it's okay to spend the evening in silent contemplation talking about this stuff, that it's worthy of doing. So I come here, I feel incredibly supported in my practice and incredibly inspired to keep practicing because it tells me culturally and socially that I'm not alone, that this journey is worth doing. So I always thank you for coming because I literally leave every time we come together with a sense of being nourished and feeling grateful that I have you in my life, that I can come here and we can do this conversation, which is such a blessing. That's Sangha. And that's why I always say, and you hear me say this all the time, Sangha means showing up. Sangha means showing up for each other and donating our time to each other in group practice, donating our hearts and our care and our inspiration. And so I really do mean it when I say, Thank you for bringing the gift of you to the evening. Because I might tell someone, someone may ask me, hey, uh, what are you doing Wednesday night? I might say, Wednesday night, I lead a meditation group. But what I mean by lead the group is that I show up because you show up. <laughs> this is a cooperative experience, right? I come and bring myself and you bring yourself. And we bring the evening into being in Sangha. It only happens if we all show up. The event cannot happen with a single individual. We have to come in community. Otherwise, there's no Dharma to be had. So that's a way to think of the support and the inspiration and comfort that happens with Sangha. It's to be nourishing, right? It's to be creating a culture of spirituality to support us and inspire us and to say, hey, this is worth doing. Keep on going, especially when it gets tough. The specific teaching around doubt includes taking refuge, refuge in spiritual friends. When you feel doubtful, consult with spiritual friends. There's been plenty of times that I've been doing this over the last couple decades, and I've, I've had some really close spiritual friends that I've still been on the path with for, in fact, the, my, one of my dearest friends who I've been on this path with, with like for 20 years, and who actually introduced me 
to my first meditation, my first Buddhist meditation retreat, I still take refuge in his consult to this day. We still call each other and say, hey, what do you think about wise speech in this way? And I'm struggling with this. Do you think this is like really mindful? So all these years I have this person I've been walking with on this path. And it's so amazing to have that over the long term of one's life in this experience. So we're lucky to have this. We're lucky to have this Sangha. We're lucky to have the mentorship. And we're lucky to have the map that's been passed on for so many centuries for these diligent students and teachers who thought it worthy to reach the goal. And we're supported by other people just like us, cheering them on, saying, yes, it's worthy to take refuge and aspire to be loving and compassionate beings. So Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We take refuge for support, for inspiration, for comfort, and to get confidence and courage in what we do. So those were my uh, extra bits and pieces that did not fit into the last few weeks. I hope that was helpful or interesting or however it landed. All right, my friends. I am feeling joy, joyful stuff talking about all this. Thank you again for coming and donating your hearts and minds to Sangha. Let us plot back for a few minutes into Meta. Let's wish the world well as we remind ourselves of our highest aspiration. Let's get back into body for a minute or two. Take a few long, slow, deep breaths. All the energy of listening, thinking, reflecting, let's just let that go. Drop into feeling, into being. Breathe some nourishing breath energy into the whole body. Take the whole body in to awareness as an object. Here you are sitting together in this incredible company, like-minded individuals seeking liberation. Safe and secure in Sangha. Breathing in, breathing out. <clears throat> and let's call to the altar of our hearts our greatest wish for all beings. In this moment, what would you wish for all beings? What prayer could you send out to the world in this moment? A wish that all beings know love and happiness, safety and security, that all beings be free from harm, judgment, ridicule, pain, so much suffering. Let's aspire that all beings be free. You might wish that all beings feel heard feel cared for and loved. You may wish all beings physical health. May they be free from danger. Any aspiration for all beings. Breathe in that aspiration, and on the exhale, just imagine that wish 
radiating out across the world, coming true for all beings. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. So lovely. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Hmm. All right, my friends. Be well. Be safe. Take care of yourselves. Take care of others when you can. Some of you I'll see on Saturday for the retreat. I'm so excited. I'll see you then. Otherwise, I'll see you back here Wednesday for our normal routine. Thanks for coming, folks. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.